All right, everybody, come on in and find a seat, and we will get started. And I'll explain what we'll get started with in a moment. But before I get into that, let me just remind you of things that are coming up. Ladies, the uh, ladies' annual Christmas social is one week from Friday, Friday night the 9th at 7 o'clock. But we need an idea of how many ladies are coming, and so there's registration for that. If you don't have the online link that we've sent by email, perhaps you're not on our email list, then you can let the uh, folks know at the information desk that's out in the foyer, know that you're coming and how many you might be bringing with you. Also, that online list has a spot for food and whether or not you can bring food, and if so, what. Uh, And if you don't, again, have that link, you can uh, let them know at the information center and just give them your name and contact information. Let them know you're willing to bring food, and then those in charge can get in touch with you. Men, that following day, Saturday the 10th, Uh, At 9 o'clock is a breakfast in this room. It's always a great breakfast that is prepared by our men, but believe it or not, it's still good, despite the fact that it's made by our men. It's really quite good. And uh, we're also going to have a guest speaker for that. We're going to have a representative from Covenant Eyes Accountability uh, Computer Software. And uh, that's something you install on your computer. You can have an accountability partner that gets an email about stuff you might be looking at because there are all kinds of temptations. Uh, for things to be looking at online that Christian men, any men, but Christian men in particular, ought not be looking at. So we'll have a guy uh, here for that. And then our adult Christmas fellowship is Sunday night the 18th. So mark that on your calendars. Uh, All adults are welcome and encouraged to uh, come to that. Let me give you our schedule for this hour. Uh, The second hour, what we call our Discovering God Hour for adults, but uh, Sunday school for our kids is going on right now. But for the next few weeks, in fact, four weeks, uh, we, have, we are in between series. I just completed the parenting series for 10 weeks. Some of you that were not in the parenting series were in with uh, Dr. Combs going through Second Corinthians and our Crossroads college-age kids had their own class. Now everybody's back in here together and we have four weeks before we start new series. Uh, I'll tell you about those four weeks and what we're going to do in a moment. But then after that, there is Christmas. Christmas Day falls on a, a Sunday this year. So on Christmas Day, we only have one service. We won't have Sunday school, Discovering God. 11 o'clock, we'll have our worship service. That's it for that day. Following week, same thing. January 1st, uh, we will have one service at 11 o'clock. But then the week after that, January the 8th, uh, we will have a series in here for four weeks called Member Orientation. And that's for everybody who's a member of our church. Larry Castle is going to be leading that class for those four weeks. And he's going to be taking the entire church through some revamped member uh, material that he's putting, he's putting together. So most of you have gone through, if you're members of our church, our members class, and you got a notebook of material then. He's revamping that. And so he's going to have everybody go through that for those, those four weeks. So if you'll indulge us for that and, and attend it, that would be a great thing. Uh, and those who are new to our church, newcomers, during those four weeks... January 8, 15, 22, and 29, I will be leading our newcomers orientation in a separate part of the building. So if you're new to our church, 
think about being here for those four Sundays. I give you a notebook of material. I tell you who our church is, where we came from, what we're about, why we do things the way we do. It's all informational for you to help you make a decision about whether or not this is the church that God would have you to be at to uh, learn and serve and grow. So that'll be the four Sundays, 8th, 15, 22, and 29 in January. We'll have both of those classes going on. Then in February, February 5th, we'll start a new series for everybody in here. And that series is going to be on anger and what the Bible teaches about anger. And the title of is it, title of is it, title is how to be good and angry. So you can you can be angry and still be good if you're angry for the right things and in the right way. Most of us are not, so we'll talk about how to be bad and angry as 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 well. But on February fifth, we will start that that series. So in the meantime, we've got these four uh, in between weeks, and whenever we have in between weeks, I get to talk about whatever I feel like, and. Uh, which is always dangerous. And what I've chosen to talk about for uh, most of those four weeks, if not all four weeks, uh, may not interest, I hope it may not interest you. So if it doesn't, don't walk out in the middle. Just don't come back if you don't want to. So I've debated doing this, but I've decided to, to do it. And in your program, you may have seen that today's session is called a matter of interpretation. So I'm going to talk about uh, principles of interpreting the Bible. And much today, much of what I'm going to talk about is something we do in a course in our midweek program that some of you have taken. So some of you have heard this. Some of you that are in midweek program right now have heard it even recently. So my apologies to you. But then next week and in subsequent weeks, we'll be talking about some things that you, you haven't heard. So stay with me if you're so inclined. And to start that, I want to show you the reason why this is important to me, why I decided to do this. Matthew chapter 2 in your Bible, Matthew chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, turn there. If you don't, then you can just listen as I read. But as you turn to Matthew 2, of course, you know that's the first book in your New Testament. So if you can just kind of go about two-thirds in to your Bible, to the right, you'll be close to the beginning of the New Testament. And then if you find, just fumble around, you'll find Matthew, and then Matthew 2. But that's the first book in your New Testament. It begins with the arrival of God the Son, the Messiah, Christ, uh, coming on the scene. And the very first chapter, Matthew chapter 1, is about the birth of Christ. And we're familiar with that, and we'll be re-familiarized with that next, next month with the celebration of Christmas. But then you come to Matthew chapter 2. And some of those events are familiar to us as well. You have the visit of the Magi to uh, to see the the baby, and uh, they have an encounter with uh, Herod in Matthew chapter two, who is concerned about this uh, boy king, who may be a rival and wants to have him killed. So he says to the Magi, "When you find him in Bethlehem, you return to me and you tell me uh, where he is." But They are forewarned, the Magi are, that Herod has evil intentions. And so when they leave Bethlehem, they do not return to him. And that's where we pick up the story in Matthew 2 and verse 13. When they had gone, that is the Magi, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. 
for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And then here's the part that's interesting, at least to me. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, quote, out of Egypt I called my son. You say, really, that's interesting to you? <laughs> that phrase, and so was fulfilled. What the, pro- what the Lord had said to the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Those words, out of Egypt I have called my son, Matthew is saying, are fulfilled in Joseph and Mary and Jesus leaving Bethlehem and going to, and going to Egypt. Well, how is that? Because if you were to go back to Hosea, which is the prophet that's being referred to. The word of the Lord spoke through the prophet out of Egypt, I've called my son. That particular prophet is Hosea. And Hosea is one of the many prophets in that first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. We've got a book by that name, Hosea. In Hosea chapter 11. In Hosea chapter 11 is recorded the Lord saying this, that out of Egypt I, I called my son. But what's it referring to in Hosea chapter 11? Now just think about it for a minute. And you'll probably come to the conclusion, rightly, that that's referring to the Exodus that's recorded in a book by that name in your Bible, the second book of your Bible. The book of Exodus records the exit, the Exodus of Israel and God's people from Egypt. They've been in slavery in Egypt. Moses leads them out. You know the story. You've at least seen the movie, right? And that's what Hosea now, centuries later, is referring to. He's referring back to the time when God led his people out of Egypt. But now you come forward in the New Testament, centuries after that, and in Matthew it says, Jesus and Mary and Joseph going to Egypt fulfills Hosea. And the thing is, Hosea is not making any sort of prediction. He wasn't predicting there's going to come a time when there's going to be this baby born and he's going to have these parents and the stuff and, and he's going to have some reason to have to go to Egypt and flee. None of that's the context of Hosea chapter 11, none of it. It's all Hosea 11, just an historical reference made to the present people of God in Hosea's time, reminding them about God's care for his people and removing them, bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. And yet you come to Matthew 2, and Matthew says, this, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus going to Egypt, is fulfilling what Hosea said. So here's the thing. If you're hearing Hosea say those words, or reading what the book of Hosea says, in Hosea chapter 11, would you ever have gotten to... Mary and Joseph go into Egypt out of that? And the answer is no. And yet Matthew's going, this is, this is the fulfillment of it. So that creates an issue for interpretation. 
I mean, how is the New Testament, in this case Matthew, using the Old Testament? Because you got this passage, and we're going to see in the next few weeks, there are others like it, where the New Testament will quote something from the Old Testament and will sometimes say, like it says here, this is fulfilling that. And then you go back and read it, and you go, man, if I read that originally, I'd have never gotten that out of it. And so how do you deal with that? How do you deal with the fact that in the New Testament, a number of times, the Old Testament is quoted, but it's quoted in ways that don't look similar to the original Old Testament context? So how am I supposed to go about interpreting the Bible if God goes and puts new spins on stuff? How am I supposed to know what the Old Testament means or meant And for that matter, as we will see, what the New Testament means. Because if God puts an extra sort of spin on it, if God's got an extra thing going on here that I could never get out of the context, then how do I arrive at the meaning? And people have dealt with that issue. And they've dealt with that issue in different ways. And the different ways that people deal with that leads you then to down particular paths. Now, full disclosure here, uh, I am what is called a dispensationalist. Some of you know what that means, and some of you don't. Those of you that don't, consider yourself in blissful ignorance. Okay, But I'm going to try to explode your bliss over the next few weeks. But it means that I, I see God in the Bible working at particular times and in particular eras in different ways that the Bible calls dispensations. But I arrive at that, uh, and so and let me add one other thing. And further, uh, as I understand the Bible, God made a bunch of promises in the Old Testament to Israel. And God said, you're going to have a land, and you're going to have a people, and there's going to be a kingdom And that kingdom is described in great detail by the prophets in the Old Testament. And that even though now we're in the New Testament and you've got the New Testament church, God is still planning to do all of that stuff. So that the the church has not replaced what God has promised to Israel. God's still going to do this stuff with Israel. But... What I just said to you that I believe is becoming an increasingly minority position. Many very, very good people, excellent people, people from whom I benefit from their books and so on, believe that God is finished with Israel. And they believe God is finished with Israel for reasons. I mean, obviously they just make this up. But part of those reasons are related to how the New Testament uses the word Israel and how the New Testament talks about Israel. And so they then interpret these Old Testament passages with God having something extra going on in the meaning. Kind of like Hosea and other passages. So how you deal with this, how you do this, actually has some uh, significant consequences. 
The approach that I believe we should take to the Bible, and I'm going to try to advocate over the next few weeks, will lead you, I'm convinced, to be a dispensationalist. But I will also try to show you why many do not take this particular approach. And it's related to things like Matthew quoting Hosea in ways that you wouldn't know Hosea was talking about. Okay? So I'd like to give you one other passage and then spend the rest of our time talking about some principles of interpretation that will guide us over the next couple of weeks. One other passage is in Second uh, Peter uh, chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. And again, if you don't have that, that's okay. Actually, it's First Peter chapter 1. First Peter 1. First Peter 1, beginning in verse 10. So here's a passage in verse 10 that says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care. Now, let me stop. So concerning now this salvation that has come through Christ, we're in the New Testament, the prophets in the Old Testament, Verse 10 is saying, searched intently and with the greatest care. What were they searching for? Verse 11, they were trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. All right, that's a mouthful. What does all that mean? We've got the prophets in the first part of the Bible. And... Many of those prophets did make predictions. Hosea was not making a prediction. But many of them did give predictive prophecy, foretelling things that are going to happen in the future. Many of those related to the Messiah, to to Christ. And as the prophets were given this information by God, they understood what God told them, but they didn't understand how and when it was all going to fit together. That's what verse 11 is saying. They're looking into the time and the circumstances. Okay? So let me give you an example. In Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2 speaks of the the one who will come, the Messiah, and speaks of him in terms of of one who who will make peace by conquering his enemies. He will be he will be a king that will come and conquer his enemies. But, and other passages in Isaiah speak of that, looking forward, predicting the one who's going to come is going to be like that. But then you come to Isaiah 53. And at Christmas, we all get re-familiarized with Isaiah 53. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We considered him stricken by God and, and afflicted. Surely he has borne our sorrows. And, uh... The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, right? So this is referring to the suffering and the death of the Messiah. So you're Isaiah now. And the Lord is telling you about one who's going to come as a conquering king. And at the same time, he's one who's going to suffer and die. And you're Isaiah and you're going, how do you put that together? And that's why 1 Peter 1, 11 says they were searching intently and with the greatest care. 
to determine the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he spoke of, and then it gives these two categories, the sufferings and the glories that would follow. Because you got both. You got suffering and death, and yet you got the glories. Well, how are you going to do that? Now, we know how. Turns out there's going to be two comings. And he's going to die in the one. And in the second one, he's going to set up his kingdom. But they don't know about the second coming. They just know that all these things are going to happen through the Messiah. And they're trying to figure out how can all that go together. Okay? Now, I point that out for you, to you for this reason. I'm going to try to make the case over the next few weeks that even though there was that level of confusion on the part of the Old Testament prophets, man, God is telling us this and God is promising us this, but how is that all going to fit together? And Peter acknowledges that they tried to figure out the time and the circumstances. How does that all fit together? Even though they didn't know how it all fit together in terms of timing, they did understand what God was telling them. They understood that this one who's going to come is going to suffer and die. They also understood that this one who's going to come is going to conquer and be king and set up a kingdom. They understood both of those. They just didn't know how they fit together. It's important to believe, and I will try to convince, that they understood what God was telling them. They understood it rightly because God spoke plainly to them. And they recorded it for us. But they didn't know how it was put together. Now, why is that important? Because many believe that the Old Testament prophets didn't understand what God was telling them. And the reason they didn't understand is because God had a deeper meaning to what he was telling them. And how do we know God had a deeper meaning? Because Matthew quotes Hosea and says, Out of Egypt I've called my son. Hosea didn't understand that that meant Jesus. So clearly God must have some deeper meaning that he intended for these Old Testament prophets, say some, other than that, the, the plain, literal, normal meaning that you would get out of reading what they said. Now, I do not believe that the Old Testament prophets misunderstood what God said or were confused by what God said other than not knowing the timing and how it would fit together. But they understood what he told them. And now over the next few weeks, I want to tell you why it is I believe that. Now, as I tell you why it is I believe that, I'm going to go to some notes that we use in our class on in our community institute on Wednesday nights. One of the classes that's part of that is called Master Plan for Life, and we have a section in there on how to interpret the Bible. So some of you have taken that. Some of you are currently taking it. So with my apologies, I'm going to go over now the four principles of interpretation, and I'll expand on it next week, that lead me to this conclusion that the Old Testament prophets understood what God was telling them. Hosea understood correctly what God was telling him when he said, out of Egypt I've called my son. Now we're going to have to figure out what Matthew's doing with it. 
But first, we want to we be sure that Hosea understood what was happening. And then we can look at how Matthew is using Hosea. Okay? So why do I say Hosea and Isaiah and all of these guys uh, understood what God was telling them? And there was not some deeper meaning for them. So let me give you these interpretive principles. There are four of them. As we lay out in the class on uh, Master Plan for Life. I'll give you the four, but first let me set it all up for you. I'll give you the four in order and explain each. First of all, what we're trying to do when we interpret the Bible, and actually when we interpret anything, not just the Bible, but the newspaper, uh, as, as you hear me speaking right now, you're interpreting what I'm saying. About half of you are. The other half of you are asleep. But I know who you are, okay? They woke up. They heard me say that. This is good. So you're interpreting what I'm saying right now. You interpret what you read. You interpret what you hear. You do this all the time with every message you're confronted with. You're interpreting. But with the Bible, you have to consciously think about interpretation, whereas when I'm talking to you, you can just unconsciously, without thinking about it, just do it. Now, why can you just do it while I'm talking? But when it comes to the Bible, you have to actually think about how to do it. Here's why. Because the Bible was written at a different time and a different place. The Bible is old and the Bible is the, the events in, in the Bible and those to whom it was first written lived in other lands. So in order for you to know, for me to know what the Bible's talking about, I have to set it in its context. It's not automatic. I've got to figure that out. Who are these people? What was going on such that God was saying these things to them? When I'm talking to you, the words that I'm speaking to you are all words that you're familiar with because we live at the same time and in the same place. If you have people who are contemporary and local, both of those, and you read the New York Times, for example. Not, I'm not saying I recommend that, but I'm just saying. If you read the New York Times, they live in America. Anyway, um, they live in America. A different America, but nevertheless... <laughs> All right, enough, enough, enough of those. If you're reading the New York Times and the newspaper, the Detroit News, they're living in, a, you know, in America and they're living at your time and so they're using language and they're using illustrations and they're making references to, for the most part, things you know about so that you can interpret just like that. I can't snap my fingers. But you can interpret automatically. So, for example... If I say, uh, the Lions are going to win today, you laugh. <laughs> because you know I'm referring to a football team in Detroit. Now, by the way, I can make a prediction. The Lions will not lose today because they're not playing. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> they played on Thursday. They'll play next Sunday. But if I were to you know, guarantee, say to you, the Lions are... The Lions are going to win today. You would know I'm referring to a football team in Detroit. 
If 2,000 years ago you're in Rome, you say the lions are going to have a good day of it, then this means it's bad for the Christians that day, doesn't it? So depending on where you are, if you're contemporary and local, you can automatically interpret what's happening. But since the Bible is neither of those, you have to think about, now hear this, you have to think about the same thing you do all the time when you hear a message or read a message. You have to interpret it. And you're interpreting right now as I speak. And as you interpret, here's what you're doing. You're trying to determine the author or the speaker's intended meaning. What is it that he or she is intending to communicate? That's what you do. And you can do that with me pretty quickly because of what I said. But with the Bible or with something like the Constitution, which is over 200 years old, that's why you have guys who are trained to try to place it in its context 200 years ago in order to determine what it meant so that we can make application of it now. But as you read phrases in the Constitution like uh, cruel and unusual punishments, you know, the Eighth Amendment prohibits cruel and unusual punishments. Well, what does that phrase mean? I can't remember the last time I used that phrase other than quoting the Eighth Amendment. But the people who wrote it intended to communicate something by it. It meant something then. And if you're interpreting the Constitution, what you should be trying to do is find out what they meant by that. Likewise with the Bible, you're trying to find out what was meant by that, but that means putting those words in a context. And you can't do it automatically, so you have to use some rules. You have to use some principles for that. But in all cases, as you listen and as you read, whether now or with an old document like the Constitution or the Bible, in all cases what you're trying to do is understand the author's or the uh, speaker's intended meaning. That's what we're trying to do with the Bible. What did Hosea intend to convey in Hosea 11? What did Isaiah intend to convey in Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 53? So that's what we're trying to do. So how do we do that? Well, here's, here's how we do it. We have to set it in context. And we have to set it in three contexts, three different types of context that will yield three different principles of interpretation. The first context is this, historical. You need to set the Bible in its historical, historical context. And historical context uh, means a few things. One, I want to know what the uh, Bible's purpose, the book's purpose was. If I'm going to set a book of the Bible in its historical context, then it will be helpful for me to know why the one who wrote it did so. I want to know the purpose of this book. In our first hour, we're going through the book of Philippians. And if you've been with us for that, you know that I've tried to give some background to that. I've tried to say here was what was going on. Paul's in under house arrest. Here's why he's under house arrest, to set it in its historical context. So that then when we read the individual passages, those passages now are illuminated. We now understand why he's saying this to them. Because here's what was going on. So we, we set it in its historical context, which means 
interpreting it in light of its purpose, but it also means a few other things. Interpreting it in light of its, its chronology. Chronology. Chronology means time. So you want to look at a book of the Bible and you want to know something about when was this written so that, as I put it in historical context, I understand some of the events that were happening. So, for example, in the second book of the Bible, the Exodus, you read about God's people coming out of Egypt, Moses leading them, and you, uh, and you read about Pharaoh. And the Bible doesn't give us Pharaoh's name. It's just Pharaoh. Well, which Pharaoh are we talking about? Well, which Pharaoh we're talking about depends on when this happened. When did the Exodus occur? It would be helpful to know when the Exodus occurred so I could know which, which Pharaoh we're talking about and then know something historically about other things that were going on that will illuminate words in Exodus. So when did, when did the Exodus take place? Well, it turns out it took place in the uh, 15th century B.C. 15th century, that would be the 1400s B.C. And specifically like 1445 B.C. Now, how do I know that? I don't. I just made that up. But it, uh, no, I, it does sound good. First Kings six one, First Kings six one in your Bible says that the Exodus took place four hundred and eighty years prior to the fourth year of Solomon's, the beginning of Solomon's reign. All right, that should be easy. Four hundred and eighty years before the fourth year of Solomon's reign. Well, if I knew when Solomon started to reign, then I could go four years in, and then I could go 480 years back, and I could get... Well, it turns out that Solomon began to his kingship in 970 B.C., 970 B.C. Four years in is 966 B.C., and 480 years prior to that is 1446 B.C. So the Exodus took place in the 15th century B.C., and the pharaoh was uh, a guy named uh, Amenhotep, not Ramses, <laughs> not Yul Brenner, even. <laughs> so the movie's off by a couple hundred years. They do a pretty good job otherwise, but they're off by a couple hundred years, Okay. So to put it in this historical context, you want to know the purpose that the book was written. You want to put it in its chronology. You also want to interpret it in light of its geography. As I'm putting it in light of its historical context, I want to put it uh, in light of its geography. So I say in that class that I teach, and those of you that have taken it, remember me saying these things. Uh, For example, when uh, the Bible speaks of going to Jerusalem, which it does a lot, because Jerusalem is central, it's where the temple was, all of that. So often you'll have phrases like people going to Jerusalem, and it'll say they went up to Jerusalem. And it'll say they went up to Jerusalem even when they're north of Jerusalem. We would think that means you're going down to Jerusalem. You know, we downriverites go up north. But no matter where they are, they're always going up to Jerusalem. And the reason is, is because it's elevated. So no matter where you are, you're going up to Jerusalem. And that also explains 
things like a group of psalms in the book of Psalms that are called psalms of, songs of, ascent, like ascending. Or if you have a King James at the top, it'll say a song of degrees because by degrees you're, you're making your way up. And this section of the psalms, Psalm 120, Psalm 121 starts this way. I lift up my eyes to the hills from where my help comes. My help is from the Lord. Now why I lift up my eyes to the hills? These are songs that were sung by pilgrims who were going to Jerusalem and they're looking up. So it tells you something about those psalms. It also tells you why everybody's always going up to Jerusalem even if they're already north of Jerusalem. So if you're going to put it in its historical context, you want to know its purpose, you want to know the time, the chronology, the geography, and you want to know something about the culture. That's the fourth and final thing about historical context. Some of the cultural stuff that was happening. Here's another example then from the Bible, Book of Ruth. Many of you are familiar with the Book of Ruth, four um, chapters in it, eighth book in your Bible, but a marvelous four chapters because it sets the stage for a lot of things that are going to happen later in the Bible, just in those four chapters. I mean, it's through the story of the book of Ruth that David ends up being the great-grandson of Ruth and winds up in Bethlehem because he's the great-grandson of Ruth and Boaz, and Boaz was from Bethlehem. And that's why the Bible, that's really the major reason the Bible includes that to set the stage for how Bethlehem becomes really important. But in those four chapters, you have this kind of weird stuff going on. You've got Ruth, who's a pagan, who becomes apparently converted, does become converted, but she's a pagan from Moab, and she marries uh, one of the sons of this guy, uh, Elimelech, who made the mistake of taking his family to Moab, so his sons pick up Moabite women which the Bible prohibited. And then the sons die, and Elimelech dies. So you got the daughters left with their mother-in-law, Naomi, and they've got to fend for themselves to make a living now because the men are all gone. They come back to Israel from, from Moab. And you got here's the weird stuff. I mean, you got things like uh, Ruth going out to glean to get food. And she's going out to glean and pick up uh, food after the harvesters have left some stuff behind. That's what she's doing. Well, if you know something about the culture, it helps. Because in the law of God, to supply for the poor, one of the ways that happened was that they were allowed to go to a farm and they were allowed to follow the harvesters and pick up what they left behind. And the harvesters were also supposed to round the corners of their property. And those corners were to be left for the poor to glean from. So when Ruth goes to glean, that's what she's doing. This is the welfare program of Israel to feed the poor. By the way, just as an aside, notice people had to work to do that. Anyway... You know, God insisted that you actually go out and get this and pick the stuff and all of that. All right, 
editorial comment over with. We'll move back to our regular scheduled programming. And we've got a group called Gleaners, and it's named after that, after that practice, feeding people. Uh, I don't know whether Gleaners makes you work for it or not, but uh, that's what it's named after. You've got another practice in the book of Ruth where Ruth is left without a husband. In those days, to be left without a husband was to be left without an income. There was no Social Security. It was a patriarchal society. Uh, If you didn't have a man, it was going to be very hard for you. So there was this thing called the law of Leverite marriage. And the idea there is that the next of kin to the deceased husband is to take responsibility and care for the widow. So Naomi, the mother-in-law, says that to Ruth. She says, you know, I think we have a relative here that might be in line to to take care of you. And so they contact this guy, and uh, he doesn't want to do it. But she's met this wealthy fellow in Bethlehem named Boaz who says, I'm the next of kin. He's got first dibs. I mean, that's the way. They go to him. He doesn't want to do it. Boaz then takes that Leverite responsibility and he marries Ruth. And then they have their children and David is one of their progeny. But knowing Leverite marriage, knowing uh, the gleaning idea, knowing that about the culture helps you see what's going on. All right, so this gives you the first of these principles that I was promising to you. You want to set it in its historical context. Setting it in its historical context means all the things I just said, and it gives you this first principle of interpreting. A text cannot mean what it never meant. A text cannot mean today what it never meant when it was written. That is, it has a historical context. It meant something. And it meant something to the people to whom it was originally given in that historical context. So a text cannot mean what it never meant. Now, we've got to quit here in a moment, but that applies to the Bible. So you don't have things meaning today what they didn't mean at the time they were written. It means when you have a small group Bible study, this is not the way to do your Bible study. Don't do this. Some of you have been in these Bible studies. You open your Bible, you read a passage, and then you go around the room and you say, Paul, what does that mean to you? And Paul says, you know, that strikes me as, I'm sure Paul would give a scholarly answer to it, but... But, you know, the person, whoever you're calling on, says, you know that, you know what that says to me? And then they say what it says to them. And then you go to the next person, what does that mean to you? You know what I hear when I read that? That means... But here's the thing. Not to be unkind, nobody really cares what it means to you. Or me. What we really got to care about is what it meant. What did it mean to the Philippians? What did it mean to the people to whom it was first given? Now I want to make application of that, but I first got to know what it meant. And a text cannot mean today what it never meant then. And now I will wax in my final 60 seconds, political, and then I'll pray (laughs) for my safety. 
That's also what we ought to do with the Constitution. It can't mean today what it never meant. So, if there's a right, a constitutional right to abortion in the Constitution, good luck finding that. I mean, I've read the Constitution. It doesn't take you long. You can look it up online. It won't take you long. And you're not going to find a right to, consti- to abortion. So what's it based on? It's based on the right to privacy. But here's the problem. There's even no right to privacy. Now, there's some rights of privacy, but there's no right, absolute right to privacy in the Constitution either. So where does that come from? If the right to abortion comes from the right to privacy, and the right to privacy is not in there, then where did it come from? I am quoting now from Griswold versus Connecticut, 1965, which was used as the basis of Roe v. Wade in 1973. The right to privacy comes from, quote, penumbras formed by emanations from the First Amendment. That's a quote. Penumbras. Anybody know what a penumbra is? Me neither. I looked it up. A shadow. The right to privacy comes from shadows formed by emanations. What's emanation? If something emanates, it, it's derived from, comes from. Shadows that come from are derived from the First Amendment. That's where the right to privacy comes from, upon which the right to abortion is given. I'm not making that up. But if you follow that a text cannot mean what it never meant, then the guys who wrote the Constitution never meant that by the First Amendment. And the writers of the Bible meant what they said to the people to whom they first said it. So we've got to put it in context, historical context. That gives us this principle. A text cannot mean what it never meant. We're going to see two other contexts and two other principles that come out of that next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for giving us your word in our language by having it preserved and then having it translated. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us then to read it to study it, to place it in its context so that we can know what you meant and then make application of that to our lives. So your word, Lord, is a gift from you, but that gift is to be used as directed. So we must use your word according to principles of interpretation that you have provided in making us in your image so that we can understand language. You made us in your image to do that very thing. So help us to take words seriously and language seriously and especially the words and the language of your word. Help us in these next few weeks to elucidate these ideas, explain these ideas so that they're helpful to your people and so that we can put them to use in our lives to bring glory to you. Go with us this week, we ask you, and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.